Starnutsky, and this is the scene of the British Open for 1953. And with us is the new British Open champion, America's champion, Ben Hogan. Ben has just concluded his second round here today at Starnutsky, where the weather was changeable throughout the day. We had rain, we had a little sunshine, we had a little wind. It was probably the best day of play of the entire tournament, both the qualifying and the championship. Hogan has just come in with a record-setting 68. He's in at 68, 282. Four players tied at 286 behind him. Well, Ben, I know this must be a great moment for you to have just won the British Open. Yes, it certainly is, John. I can't tell you how happy I am. The people have just been wonderful coming over here. I never saw such crowds, and uh, I think the whole of Scotland actually was pulling for me to win. Welcome to the 56th episode of Talking Golf History. In the 500 plus years the game of golf has been played, few would argue against the year of 1953 as being one of the most pivotal. Ben Hogan, at the very height of his powers, tore through the game with a fire and intensity that had not been seen since 1930. Today on our show, we welcome special guest Ben Wright, who spent 50 years covering the game of golf, including 30 years at Augusta National in the tower covering the Masters. Ben, now 89 years young, shares his unique friendship with Ben Hogan, including watching Hogan hit every single shot in his race to claim the Triple Crown at Carnoustie. I promise you a delightful interview, and we will close this show with some special audio clips covering Ben Hogan's remarkable Open Championship victory at Carnoustie in 1953. Without further ado, part one of a series of interviews with the legendary Ben Wright. It is my sincere honor to welcome Mr. Ben Wright, whose career in broadcasting lasted 50 years, and who was a fixture at the Masters for over 30 tournaments. Mr. Wright, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Golf History. It's uh, my extreme pleasure because like you, I value golf history, which is underserved. It totally is underserved. I can't agree more. There should be a hundred programs like this. Not to get off topic, but our viewing pleasure of history usually comes in two-minute sound bites or two-minute videos prior to a major. Yeah. You know, you don't see it on regular TV. You don't no. have radio shows that no. capture it. And yeah. that's really what spurred me taking on this endeavor. I'm thrilled to be part of it. I, I'm, trust me, I'm the one that's thrilled. <laughs> trust me. You know, Ben, I was well aware of your broadcasting career, especially your work with the Masters. But I was completely unaware until I read your article in The Golf, which is Golf Heritage Society's uh, publication, of your relationship with Ben Hogan. I have to ask, not many friendships start with somebody's, you know, going AWOL. Uh, could you please share that story about you going to Carnoustie? Well, um, first of all, I was fascinated by Mr. Hogan because I wanted to hate him for, <laughs> for his arrogance. Someone sent me, a friend of mine um, in America, uh, a clipping from the Fort Worth Star Telegram by Dan Jenkins, who later became one of my close personal friends, tra traveling companion, bon vivant, you know. Love it. And, and um, I, I, the, the, basically the story was that 
Mr. Hogan said, I'm going to the British Open at Carnoustie, and uh, I'm going to win it, and I'm never going to return to defend it. All I need to do is once. And I thought, you arrogant pig. What a, what a disgrace. So I thought, well, I must still um, see him because he was obviously very preeminent in that particular year. Yeah. Well, and he was basically saying it was a one-time opportunity if you were ever going to get your eyes on him. Yeah. Yeah, when would you ever have that chance? So I was stationed in the uh, British Army Intelligence at Crail Aerodrome, which is close to St. Andrews. I was a Russian interpreter at the height of the Cold War, and we were doing a refresher course on Russian military jargon, would you believe? At Crail Aerodrome. Really? (laughs) It was ridiculous. So the only way I could get to see Mr. Hogan at Carnoustie was to go absent without leave. We were officer cadets in that time, which didn't mean the darn thing. You you were nothing. But uh, three friends and myself, and one of the friends was a guy called Edward James Dudley Corey Wright, whose sister was bridesmaid to the Queen. Uh, And um, and there were two other guys. One was a virtually uh, an uneducated gentleman, and the other one was a very highly educated Scotty, but you could have barely understood, barely understand what he said. So we bought this Austin 10 secondhand for £10. And I said to the guys, look, I've got to go and watch Mr. Hogan. Are you okay if I take the car? And they said, of course, as long as you come back. And I said, well, now you've got to cover for me. You, you've got to put the bolsters and pillows in the bed in the unit and say that I have a communicable disease. <laughs> You did. You had golf fever, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, to cut it a long story short, I drove off to Carnoustie, chug, chug, chug. I mean, it wasn't what you'd call a performance car, but anyhow, it did the trick. And I got to Carnoustie, and I reported to the authorities, and I said, I'm here to follow Mr. Hogan. I didn't tell them I was AWOL. I said, can you give me uh, a steer where I could stay for the week? And they said, oh, yeah. We've got a lot of ladies in the village who will put up with you. And I got a, a lady called Ma Wilson. I paid her the princely sum of four pounds for the week. For the week? For the week. Unbelievable. Unbelievable it was. But it's only bed and breakfast, uh, which is all I wanted anyhow. Yeah. And she was fabulous to me, absolutely looked after me as if I was her own. And it was a wonderful digs. So the first day, Monday, um, Hogan had come in Sunday night, if memory serves me correctly. 
I knew that you had to practice Panmure. Did everyone practice at Penmuir? Well, yes, uh, mostly, or anywhere else you, you could, could get find, yeah. you know, in the neighborhood. Uh, but until qualifying, you couldn't play the golf course. Interesting. Very interesting. And so all the pros who had come from afar were finding Penmuir or any other yeah. available golf course to yeah. warm up on. Sure. Interesting. Well, I uh, heard that Mr. Hogan was going to practice at Panmure, and I went over there um, Monday morning, and uh, he was there with his faithful caddy, who was a big fella, a good-looking fella called Cecil Timms. And I'll never forget Cecil, because he was plainly a ladies' man. <laughs> <laughs> and anyhow, Hogan called him Timsey, and he liked him, you know, because he was basically a wild man. Balanced out Hogan, I bet, right? Yeah. In Hogan. Well, or you, you seek your opposite, right? Maybe. <laughs> well, you know, maybe. You seek somebody who's got the little wild in him because Hogan didn't seem to have much wild in him. Uh, well, there was a slightly wild oh, I can't side. wait to hear it. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, he was very outspoken. Anyhow, uh, I showed up and I watched them practice, and I was in awe. From the very start, I was in awe at the incredible control that Mr. Hogan had over the golf ball. It was something the likes of which I had never seen, let alone dreamed of. And uh, instead of being totally anti, I found myself in some kind of a worshipful stage. <laughs> How long did it take to go from, I'm going here to cheer against this pig, to, oh my wonder, what, what capabilities this man has? Well, um, first of all, uh, he started with the short arms and, and, and put them at Tim's feet. I mean, it, it was unbelievable. In fact, the whole week... In practice, he, Timsey never had to move more than five yards to pick up the ball. It landed softly with any, with any in a, club. like a butterfly with sore wings or whatever, right at his feet. And having gone through the clubs, what really went, when I went crazy about was the two irons that he shaped both ways, left to right and right to left, and landed them at Tim's feet. I thought, and, and you know, uh, Connor, there was no question about it. There was a different sound. What did it sound like? I mean, I, how would you describe that? I, I, don't, I mean, I can't understand it to this day. But there was a sound that his clubs made that I never heard before. Or and you spent since. 50 years yeah. in golf media. Yeah. And you've never heard that sound. No, not quite the same. Anyhow, I watched every shot he hit every day in practice. And I watched every shot of the 72 holes. And as you know, he went 73, 71, 70, 68. And the last two rounds were played on Friday. 
you qualified Wednesday and Thursday, and the last two rounds were played on Friday because it was so soon after the Second World War that we didn't have any playing professionals. Uh, they were club professionals, all of them. And they had to be back to open the store on Saturday morning because it, it was weekend golf only at that time, after, you know, so soon after the war. And I, I cannot tell you uh, how brilliant uh, Hogan's display. I remember some idiot writing that he played uh, in the second round on Friday out of the divots he'd made on the morning round. Well, of course, he wouldn't be so stupid. Right. He, right. Had, he had them six inches, six inches alongside away. those right. divots. I love it. And, and it was just, it was a tour de force that, you know, as a young kid, I was mad keen on playing. And, of course, I couldn't play because I was in the service. I mean, we, we did sneak away every now and again. But, and I used to play Crail Lynx, which is, I believe, the fourth oldest in Great Britain. Anyhow, uh, uh, it, it was just incredible. And the, uh, I, the quality of the shot making, I mean, there was never any doubt to my mind. You're watching him warm up. You're watching uh, Cecil out there standing 200 yards away as he's hitting butterfly shots, cuts and hooks yes. into his feet. I mean, did you know right there the field didn't have a chance? Yes. Yes, I did. I really did. And I was a pretty good admirer of Di Reese, who was a personal friend. Uh, had given me my first tournament as an amateur playing in a pro tournament with I missed the cut and my father told me to think of something else rather than turn pro, which was probably the best advice I ever had, although I hated him for it. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, when I came to the last hole and by this time Hogan was really dragging. A lot of people don't realize how badly he was injured. And so you're saying the 72nd hole of the tournament. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, he was dragging up that last fairway. And made, holes, yeah. And made, you know, just an impeccable par four. Uh, and I thought to myself, this is a, a religious experience. I became... A total devotee. A Hoganite. A Hoganite. So, that was all done. And I, I have to tell you that one day, I think it might have been the fi after the final, that I asked his limo driver if I could get, get a lift with Mr. Hogan. Hogan was in the car? Yes. Free <laughs> <So laughs> wine. How does it, I mean, was he driving toward you and you stopped the car? I stopped the car. <laughs> <laughs> so Hogan's won the 1953 Open. He's driving away from the clubhouse. Ben Wright, who is not a writer at this time, who is not a broadcaster. He's a young uh, Russian interpreter. Yes. Who is AWOL. Yes. Steps in front of the car. 
Yes. And says what? Can you possibly give me a ride into town? <laughs> and uh, Hogan said, drive on. <laughs> well, at least he didn't say drive over him. No. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, and I, I thought to myself, well, that's Hogan. Yeah. Well, I have to, I mean, it begs a follow-up question. So you became friendly with him later on in his career. Yes. Did you ever tell him that story? Oh, yes. And what did he say? He said, I remember it well. <laughs> I, when I wrote to him, right? when I became uh, uh, Financial Times. Yeah, which well, we'll get into. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, I was invited to the Colonial National Invitational by that club, uh, the Colonial Club, to attend their tournament. So, knowing that it was in Fort Worth, but never having been there, uh, I accepted the invitation, and I wrote to Mr. Hogan, and I said, you probably there would be no way you would remember me, yeah. but but I bugged your every footstep in the the 1953 Open, and uh, what's more, bothered you for a ride into town, and uh, I, I said I'm sure you don't remember, but I want to ask you a favor because you became my hero that week. And I would really love, because I've heard it's a great experience to be shown around your factory. Well, the reply didn't come for probably a month. Did but you think in that during that month? Did you just think that you I, never saw it, or you no? Know, I, I thought well, he or just, it was a drive-on moment. <laughs> I thought he might have just tossed it in. Sure, the, sure, drive-on driver. Yeah, just. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow. When the reply came, I was absolutely mystified because he said, I do remember you. Uh, I remember you as a young man who watched my every damn shot. He remembered that? Yes. Unbelievable. And he said, not only will I give you a tour of my factory, but I'm going to have you picked up at DFW Airport by one of my drivers and he will take you to your hotel and um, he will either let you freshen up and bring you then or he'll call me and say that I'm tired and I would rather do it the following morning and then he will pick me up at 9 o'clock which is what happened. I was tired. I mean, I have, I'd flown from England to, you know, and it was... And, of you, course, and you want to be on the top of your game when you're meeting Ben Hogan. At exactly. Factory, right? And, yeah. you know, unfortunately, I, I'm being a wild person. I drank my way across the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> so anyhow, I went to the factory and I met Mr. Hogan. And, uh, I mean... Did that bring back anything from the 53 Open? I assume, was this the first time you'd seen him since 53? Yes, yes, absolutely. Oh. And anyhow, he was most cordial. He gave me this phenomenal tour 
of the factory in which he discarded several clubs that he didn't like the look of. So, so he'd pick them up that, and just... To- just tossed them in the bin. Oh, wow. And uh, I wondered how on earth he could make a profit. <laughs> sure. <laughs> but and I'm, I'm, I'm really reliably informed that it did help him to go bust. The fact that he was such a perfectionist that he threw away more clubs than he sold. Unbelievable, right? It is unbelievable. Nobody would do that. No. Nobody would do no, that. No. So, anyhow, he says uh, after the tour, what are you doing for lunch? And I said, I certainly have no plans, Mr. Hogan. He said, well, you do now. You're coming with me to Shady Oaks. So he took me for lunch at Shady Oaks. And I remember he had four martinis. Now, uh, give me an idea about what year would this be? Can you think of that? I think... I think 1967. Okay, okay, 1967. Okay. I think it is. It might be 67, might be Somewhere 68. Around okay, perfect. But, it, but it, you know, I got the job at the FT, as they called it, in 66. Financial Times. Yes. Yeah. So it would have been during that, yeah. Yeah. So you're with, you were with the Financial Times when you went to go see him. Yes. Perfect. Yes. And so we went for lunch and had this most lovely lunch. And now he said, come on, we're going to the practice tea. Wait, before I, you go there, what did you talk about at lunch? What does Ben Hogan say to someone at lunch? Because I, 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 my vision of Ben Hogan is that he takes it on like a, a, like a practice session. And he just eats his food without talking. But he said... Um, he said... Uh, you got yourself a nice job. And I said, yes, I have, Mr. Hogan. And I told him that I had carte blanche and I could travel anywhere uh, at the newspaper's expense. And he said, and rightly so. He said, you obviously love the game. So let's get outside. I've got a set of clubs for you to try. And... Uh, I became a basket case. Oh, I can't even imagine. Ben Hogan says, let's go outside and hit these clubs I made for you. Yeah. I mean, I I was too handicapped, and I played like an idiot. No. I mean, who wouldn't? Ben (laughs) Hogan's watching you. I'd be shanking the ball right. It would be all over the place. I'd be terrified. And he said, stop. He said, young Ben, he called me young Ben. Although I was... Nearly round about 40, more than 40. And he called me young Ben. He said, I'm not an ogre. And uh, just relax. And I said, Mr. Hogan, with respect, you are an ogre. As far as I'm concerned, I'm so scared. Uh, And he, he said, forget it. Just hit, just hit. The ball freely, boy. Put the ball freely. I eventually I played some halfway decent shots, and he said, "Okay, that's enough. I know what specifications to make a set of clubs for you." And he said, "And they'll be with you by the time you get back to England." And I thought to myself, 
I don't believe this one. Yeah, I, mean, I can't right. believe my luck. Like he's, but he's giving you the set. He's not giving saying here's the, the bill for the clubs. No, giving you know, me the set. I'm going to give you the set. Yeah. Did you ask him if he made the set out of the d- discarded clubs that he threw in the trash? <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't. I was so in awe. Oh, I can't even imagine. And when I got home, I, I unwrapped this magnificent set of apex arms and the persimmon woods, of course, yeah. which were beautiful. And uh, I played very well with them, I might add. And in... 1974, I was using them when I was a team member of two uh, winning teams on the European tour. And um, more of that later because... Yeah, yeah, we'll get into it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but um, the, the funny thing was, I don't know how he found out, but Hogan found out that my game went a little awry, and he then sent me... This is in the 1970s, y- yes. like years later, yes. Yes, after, after the wins. So it would be between 74 and 80. Um, he said, send me another set of clubs. And they were the edge irons. And they said... Probably since your game appears to have gone a little awry, these will be more easy for you to manage. Wow. I mean, it was just amazing. Yeah. I don't know where he found it, out this information. The man was really... Uh, Clearly uh, cared enough to track what you were doing I mean, overseas, right? Extraordinary. Extraordinary, man. And then to have the kindness to do that. Yeah. And, and so, then when I joined CBS, after I'd been there a few years, he, Mr. Hogan instituted a uh, lunch for Frank Chikidian, my mm-hmm. producer, director, and the, the announced team at Shady Oaks on the Tuesday or Wednesday of the tournament. And it was really remarkable. I mean, it was a lovely event. Because he later told me and Frank Chikinian that CBS was the only golf outfit, broadcasting outfit he watched. Because he said, NBC and ABC are rubbish. (laughs) Oh, did he really? Yes. Wow. Yeah. So, even we fast forward a few more years, and Frank Chikinian put on a brunch for Mr. and Mrs. Hogan uh, on the Sunday morning uh, of the event, and uh, it was lovely. I mean, it was wonderful. But one last year, Hogan sat there, never said a word. This is in his older age, right? Yeah. Yeah. And he said eventually, Valerie, get me out of here. I'm useless. Hmm. And with that, he left and was dead within months of Alzheimer's. 
the dementia, call it what you will, you know. And, um, you know, I was extremely upset by his passing. But, of course, I call myself Ben. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, when I was a cub reporter long before, and this was 1954, I was a cub reporter. The night news editor hated me because I was a public schoolboy, which means, uh, as far as he was concerned, I was a scumbag toff. <laughs> a rich kid, yeah. you know. And he hated me with a passion. So when I got my first byline story, which was a particularly revolting affair with uh, a truckload of sugar had gone head-on with a coach load of m teenage mill workers oh. in a blinding snowstorm. And I had to go out on the moors above Manchester and r report that story. And I came back and I penned my epic and I said, by John Bentley hyphen right. And this nasty... Because your Christian name is John. I, I really is. Yeah, a lot yes. of people probably don't know that. No. Anyhow, uh, this gentleman, he was called Maurice Wigglesworth, and he was 300 pounds, didn't have a hair on his head, and he was perpetually covered in sweat, his bald head. And I claimed that he sat on a stool, and probably the stool was close to his throat because he was so fat and overhanging right. overhanging the stool I really hated him as much as he hated me and he said and I'll leave the expletives out he said John Bentley hyphen effing right said it like that yeah he said the hyphen yeah he, he said do you think we run the columns of this newspaper to accommodate your effing name. He said, unless you want to spend the rest of your mediocre career in total anonymity, you will change that forthwith. Wow. So I went to the back of the room and I thought, Ben. Ben. Mr. Hogan. That's right. My idol. And I've been Ben Wright ever since. Unbelievable. Okay, I have to rewind. I have to ask you this question because I'm afraid to ask this question. Do you still have those Ben Hogan irons? No. Ben! Ben! Oh, Ben! Ben! What happened to him? Oh. I sold them. Oh, Ben! Oh. If you have them out there, if you're listening to this, call me. I have to see those. I, I don't need to buy them. I have to see them. That's unbelievable. Ben. I know. Oh. Uh, I'm, you know, but, you know, I was probably a bit hard up at the time. Yeah. I get it. You I mean, know, I, the things I've sold, I, I, I'll tell you. I mean, I, people that follow me know this. I, I once had Walter Hagen's 1929 Ryder Cup bag that he won his last open with. Oh. And the irons. Oh. And I don't have it anymore. Oh, well, you sold it. I sold it, yeah. I mean, well, I, I did the same. Yeah. Well, a guy gave me 
an offer I couldn't refuse. Same thing. I, I, I always tell people when it comes to my collection, first of all, whenever you have something like Ben Hogan's irons that were made for you, uh, I always tell people, you never really own it. You're just basically caring for it until the next person, yes. right? And the second part is, I tell people, and th- people have this hard time believing this, is at least in my collection, if I have something in the corner of my room, which was um, Walter Hagen's bag, after a while, and, and a lot of people don't get this, at some point it becomes a piece of furniture. Yeah. Like I've appreciated it for yeah. you know that time that I had it. Yes. And it was time for somebody else to appreciate it. Yeah, and you know, that, that I, it was a little bit of my thought, but more was the truth that I wanted the money. Sure, <laughs> sure. I, I only ask selfishly and react selfishly because I would love to see them right now. That is, I mean, unbelievable story. Two sets of irons he made for you. Yeah. Well, let me go back to some of the questions I have on the 53 Open. Yes. Because some of them I just... You spoke a little bit about his accuracy. Um, he was notoriously uh, a hard worker. Yes. Did you you saw every basically every shot he hit yes. from practice to Penn Muir to qualifying yes. to the Open? Did you ever see a moment of levity from him, or was it always business when he that you, when you saw it him? was all business? There was no jokes, or it was just there were no grinding. jokes or a lot of cigarettes. He smoked a lot. And, um, of course, so did some of the players he played with. For instance, yeah, I think he played the last two rounds with Charlie Ward, who was a pro at Little Aston in uh, England. And Charlie never had a cigarette out of his mouth. He talked with the damn cigarette flipping, flapping up and down. You know, so... Uh, in those days, that was acceptable practice. Yeah. But um, it always upset me because I'm a lifetime non-smoker. And I, I, I didn't have the, the, the uh, courage to say to Mr. Hogan, you know what a soft pedal that, I'd love to have said that. Because I think it... It contributed to his yeah, shortness of downfall. his life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, no question. So one of the questions I have, and I think it's from everybody listening, um, is that most people, at least listening to the show right now, never saw Hogan hit a live shot. No. And they certainly never saw him hit a live shot in the top of his prime. I mean, 1953 Open is the tip of his prime. Absolutely. So, you know... May I interrupt please, one second? Please do. Anytime Car you want to interrupt me, you do that. <laughs> Carnoustie is the toughest damn course I've ever played. I mean, bar none. And um, the weather was really unpleasant. I mean, it was never warm. You know, and, and Hogan needed a bit of warmth, really. Absolutely, with his you'd legs. Think, Absolutely, to, yeah. to perform his best. Yet he defied everything. And it was, that made it so much greater. It was his in, impenetrable resolve, you know, that he was here for one thing, to win this damn thing and never come He's back. Get the hell out of here and never yeah. coming back. Yeah. yeah, and he, you know, he didn't enjoy the weather. 
And nor would anybody who'd been banged up like he was. You know, the, the colder the weather, the worse it is. Uh, like my own case in point, you know. Yeah, both of us have back issues. And I can't yeah. imagine. If it's cold outside, I want nothing to do with golf. Yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> so and, and, and I guess you could look at it as every single day he seemed to learn something from Carnoustie. He got better every single day. Yes. That's, I mean, another testament to how great he was. It's yes, like it really was. More every day. I mean, this, the final round, 68, was a major tour de force. It couldn't have been a stroke more and could have been four or five less. You know, uh, not everything went in. I mean, otherwise it would have been even more impossible to play against. Yeah. But, you know, he missed his share of putts that he might on another day of hold, you know. But that was just about the only flaw in his game. I didn't think he was as good a putter as he was a striker of the golf ball. He didn't have to be, of course, when he you're dropping at two feet from exactly right. Cecil's feet all the time, right? Yeah, I mean, he had it within 10 or 15 feet of every hole. And probably on the right side of the hole that he wanted yes. to be on. Oh, yeah. It was all totally worked out. Yeah, one of my favorite stories, uh, and I, I heard this from um, the Society of Golf Historians' uh, private page. Uh, there was another gentleman who had the opportunity to talk to uh, John Durr, uh, who did the famous radio broadcast, which will be part of this podcast at the end here. Yeah. Um, and I, I can't remember. I'm not going to get this right because it's you know faulty memory here. But uh, the gentleman on the page was saying that in, in was talking to John Durr and. In his conversation with Mr. Durr, he was reciting this moment with Hogan where he was following Hogan as well, with you, as a matter of fact. Mm. And Durr went up to him, and Hogan, I think, I think it was around the 14th hole, mm. asked where everybody sat you know, in the field, and he kind of gave him a synopsis. Yeah. And Hogan hit a beautiful, just perfect tee shot. I think it was on 14, just right where he wanted to hit it. Yeah. And he turned to Durr, and he said, you better get the radio ready. I'll, I'll be finishing up soon, and we can record the broadcast, meaning he knew he was going to win it. Yes. He was playing that impeccable. That, that seemed to be his mindset from first to last. Well, before that, for, I mean, the Fort Worth article yes, that you had, absolutely. I mean, he knew it coming in. I'm doing this once. Yeah. He had this resolve, the likes of which I've never... Well, I suppose of the people I watched, Nicholas was closest to that. Could you feel it? Like when you're following Hogan, could you feel that resolve? Yeah. I mean, did it and emanate from and him? And, you know, I wouldn't be so cruel as to suggest it. But, in fact, he did have a superiority complex. He felt he was above them. The other players? Yes. He felt he was a special person. Which he was. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I, had a, I had a conversation not on air or not recorded with Jack Nicholas. This is years ago. And um, someone asked him, you versus Tiger Woods in your prime, back nine of Augusta, who would win? And Jack, without missing a beat, never had, had said this on TV, said, I'd beat him like a drum. And I was taken back by that. I'd never heard that response. And he, there was this long pause, and he said, of course... 
Tiger Woods would say the same thing about me. Yes. He goes, the great champions believe it at their core. It's the difference between Hogan and Sneed. Hogan, Nelson. Hogan, whoever. Or Nicholas, you know, and, and Lee Trevino. They know it. Yes. It's, they, it's not even a belief. It's a no. They yes. know it. You, you uh, remind me of a story about Jack Nicholas. He won the Jackie Gleason Inverary Classic one year, and Greer Jones was leading the field uh, by considerable margin long into the last round. And Nicholas birded the last five holes to beat him. And Greer Jones was never seen again. <laughs> and is teaching golf at the University of Wichita, I think. And um, I said to Nicholas, did, did you ever think that you were too far behind? And he said, of course not. Of course not. I said, well, wait a minute. You had to birdie the last five holes. So what? I knew what I had to do. Unbelievable. Yes, it is unbelievable. You're right. Those are the very special golfers. And they believe it. I mean, they know. You have to know. I mean, I don't know Tiger Woods, but you have to know in his prime. Hmm. He knew he was better than the field. I mean, he just knew it. I mean, yeah. you want to call it arrogance, you call it arrogance. But yeah. Jack Nicholas, the same. I mean, there was zero doubt in their minds. Hogan, hmm. there's a very special trait in a champion yes. that is a level of self-belief and almost selfishness hmm. that oh, this yes. tournament belongs to me. Yes. The only way you can win it is I let you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it is selfish. But you have to be. Have to be, to be that great. Agree. And I, I think, not to get off topic, but I think, you know, those champions that are great, Hall of Famers even, but never reach that peak, they, that's the piece they lack, I mm. think. I mean, I, I don't want to talk out of tone here, but I feel like there is that almost selfish arrogance of knowing that you're the best is the difference between that and if I play my best... I can win this major. Yes, exactly. And so you felt that. I mean, you could, you felt that from Hogan and all Absolutely. those shots. Absolutely. You know, I was really hoping against hope that he'd fall flat on his face for his arrogance. And then I ended up worshiping for the rest of my life. <laughs> for the life. rest of your I mean, what a turn of events. When does that ever happen in exactly. sports? Where you go in. Never, never to me. against somebody, right? Yeah, and absolutely. And you become a Hoganite, right? Yeah. Do, do you think, and this is speculation, but do you think the, the, the other players in the field, did they feel that aura? I mean, do you, do you ever yes. catch them watching him? Like, you know, Ben's not, you know, maybe from behind Hogan, so he couldn't see it. And they just watch a shot in, like, pure admiration. Yes. And that was Bill Branch, who played with Hogan in the first two rounds of the 53 Open. And I said, what was your lasting impression of those two rounds with Mr. Hogan? And he said, I felt I was in the presence of God. 
Wow. Hmm. And um, Bill was a charming, wonderful person. But he was totally, you know, he was in awe. He didn't really play very well because he was just so overwhelmed by the situation. Who wouldn't be? Exactly. Right? When you're seeing an yeah. artist, a, a god, if you yeah. will, yeah, shape shots any way he wants. Absolutely any way he wanted. He had such control. It was, well, magical uh, is a, probably a poor way of putting it. Yeah. But um, a religious experience, I would say, for me. Let me ask you this. Did, yeah. did the myth of Hogan match the golfer that you saw there that day? I assume it did. Hmm. I, I don't think I've ever seen anything the, the, the equal of that performance. I mean, you've got to give Jack Nicholas all the credit he deserves for being able to win as much as he did through sheer belief, but there was nothing quite like this godlike dominance. I mean, it, I, I, I don't mean to blaspheme or anything. Sure, like, no. You know, and I hope it's not no, it's, in... I, I think people are taking it as in the descriptive form that you're using it. Yeah, yeah. I think I would back Hogan... On the score of that week against anybody who ever played the game, including Bobby Jones, you know, and anybody else for yeah. that matter. Right. What's interesting here is, um, so Hogan wins the 1953 Open. He's now completed the Triple Crown. Yes. He's won three majors in a row. He can't play in the PGA because of scheduling conflicts. Right. If, if I were to have walked up to young Benny... Right after the tournament, right before you step in front of Hogan's car and ask for a ride into town. If I were to stop you right there, Ben, and say, Ben Wright, you just saw the greatest performance you'll ever see in golf. Hogan will never win another major. It was amazing. It was amazing to me. I think I saw his last competitive round which was in the 1967 PGA at Southern Hills, Tulsa. And the reason he played, I was watching, was Tony Jacklin, who was my best friend. Uh, he was playing with Hogan that day. And Tony uh, came in and Hogan uh, paid him $10, which was their bet. And Hogan had lost. And Hogan said, Tony, you'll never see me on a golf course again. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And uh, um, his knee had given way on several shots uh, during the round when he was on, uh, his feet were above the ball. And... Such was the scope of his injuries that they didn't get any better. And, I, and uh, Tony told me he kept that $10 bill. You think he still has it? Yeah, he still has it. And he, really? 
and Hogan, he asked Hogan to sign it. He signed it? Yes. Wow. And he did. And he did. Unbelievable. Hmm. Coming back to this, 1953, the Open Championship, Carnoustie. Ben Hogan wins three in a row. Would, there's no way I could have ever convinced you that Ben Hogan would never win a major after that. You could not indeed. I, I would never have believed it. Yeah, I, I think maybe the supreme effort of it took more out of him than maybe, maybe even I realized at the time. I mean, when I saw him come up that last fairway in 53, he was very gray in the face. He was obviously in total agony, and yet he fought it off. Um, I think it, it might have been uh, something that he gave so much of himself that, that he couldn't ever replicate that and I and that may be doing him a disservice but I think you know when I look back on it it cost him so much that physically and mentally cost him so much but it probably was what he wanted and who knows but I would never have believed he would not win another major I mean, you would th- almost think he'd win them all, right? Well, you I know, that, would have that he would just continue. So. Uh, yeah, I would have thought so. Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It's the game of golf, isn't it? Yes, it is the game I mean, of golf. It, one and day I mean, yeah. and you know, who would believe that Arnold Palmer, from sixty-eight, I'm sorry, fifty-eight to sixty-four, unbeatable, not nothing ever. Yeah. After, after he turned 35, except never a, won. Except the Spanish Open right. <laughs> of 1973, which I think I told you about. He birded the last hole to win a par five at yeah. La Manga Campo de Golf in southern Spain. And Arnold went crazy. He was totally crazy. Like he won an, like an open championship, crazy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there you are, you know. It's the game of golf. You just it? don't know, right? You just don't know when you your last know. major is done. Yeah. I mean, there must have been even a, a fleeting moment within Jack Nicholas after winning the Masters in 86, thinking, well, I'll just go out and win the next major too, right? It's the mindset of a grand champion. But you just don't know when that last major is done. No. And it, it could be a cruel game. I, uh, I was taken... By that 1986 victory, I I didn't say it at the time, but I felt in the final round that that eagle at 15 was inevitable because he'd he'd missed virtually the same part in 1975 and uh, only made birdie, and I felt. You know, Jack is Jack is so different that he's got that in his head. Now you missed it on the left. Don't do that Don't again. Don't ever do it again. 
but he won 75, and that was, I would say, you know, second to 1986. Probably just as good, except of the sentimentality of 1986, when Nicholas was probably very much past his prime. Absolutely. And um, 75, when you had the two very obviously next best players missing a part at 18, both of them to tie. That was one hell of an event. And uh, that was probably my most famous call. That's right, yeah. Where Frank Chikinian said it was the best uh, duo with Henry Longhurst at 16 and me at 15. And I said, when Weisskopf made the part on 15, that was evil music ringing in Jack Nicholas's ear, who'd backed off on 16 uh, to let Weisskopf part. And then Nicholas hold it from 40 feet. Oh. And Henry said, well, in his very... Nice way to, uh, Mr. Nicholas has made a little even music of his own. And he said, and that is the greatest part I ever saw. Oh, I mean, that was, and French came into his dying day. So well, that was the best comeback or the best whatever duo. Around. Yeah. Tandem, right? I mean, you were working in tandem, essentially. Yes, I mean, exactly. not purposely, perhaps, but... Yes, yeah. Because, you know, he was my guide and mentor, was Henry. You know, I am digress, if I may. Yeah, please do. The only open I did for the BBC on television, I did a lot of radio, was 1967 and Roberto de Vicenzo. And I was a rookie... And uh, I was up the tower with uh, Henry, and Nicholas finished immediately in front of De Vicenzo at Hoylake. And Henry said, well, I'm sending young Wright down to talk to Nicholas because I think on this occasion he's going to be second best. So I went down to interview Nicholas, and De Vicenzo is coming down the final hole, and the fans started stamping on the bleachers, which were metal, and it made such a noise that we had to abort the interview until after uh, De Vicenzo finished. And it was the only time I ever saw Jack Nicholas shed a tear. Really? Yes. And I said, Jack, I'm not being rude enough to ask you why you shed a tear, but nevertheless, why did you? (laughs) Is this in the interview? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And what did he say? He said, that man deserves it so badly. He's finished so close, so many times since the Second World War. I find myself 
glad for him. I mean, class act. Unbelievable. Who sheds a tear from an, for another player on, yeah. on your own loss? Exactly. Unbelievable. Yeah, I thought you'd like that story because I was very impressed and Henry was very impressed too. He was very pleased that I'd taken the, taken the, well, I, I could have got myself shouted at by Nicholas. You don't know, yeah, right? Yeah. You just don't know. You have to take that and chance. And he was really pleased with me for directing that question. So going back to Hogan, and we'll get into your career right after this, but coming back to Hogan, I, I don't imagine Hogan shed many tears for coming in second. <laughs> <laughs> no. He, he would not have been, it might have been a tear of a different sort out of anger, maybe, of, of losing it. But he, he has a reputation, Hogan does, of being a very hard man, uh, maybe even an unpleasant man or uh, curt. Yes. What was your experience with Hogan? I mean, you had a different relationship with him, but did you ever? Well, yeah. you, you know, he took a shine to me, no question about it. And he also liked my television work. I mean, he told me so. And he said, I've always got a soft spot for someone who I admire in his own field. And uh, so therefore, I felt very privileged to be really one of his, one of his favorite people. And he didn't have too many. No, he didn't. And he was so kind to me. I mean, it's almost ridiculous. He, I, you know, maybe he saw in me a son he might have had. Sure. I, who knows? Yeah. I, I, I have no idea. But the fact was he was extraordinarily warm to me till that dread day when he, when he left lunch. Uh, I feel extremely fortunate to have been in that position. Yeah. You know, Ben, I just can't, I can't get over it. And we're going to get into this immediately after this podcast as we wind this one down. But we'll probably bring it up. I'm probably going to bring it up in the very next one. But would it be fair to say that you owe your broadcasting and media career to that moment in 53? Yes. You going AWOL. I yes. Mean, your yes. name, Ben. I mean, yes. instead of John. Yeah, well, what I haven't told you, when I was at school, I was uh, educated at a very posh school called Felstead in Essex. And the Queen Mum was our patron. And um, uh, I was deputy head of the school, but I was editor of the school magazine. And one year, it would be 1951, my last year, um, we were supposed to have the England field hockey trial at my school, which was played hockey in the spring, but rugby in the, before Christmas. And um, the, the weather was so foul, uh, it was snowing horizontally as it can do in Essex. You know, you're close to the North Sea and it can be brutal. The vile weather off the sea. Yeah, and the Times and Sunday Times correspondents 
stayed in the local pub. And I took the opportunity to send a report in to the Sunday Times. And the sports editor of the Sunday Times was a one-eyed Irishman called Pat Murphy, who'd lost his other eye playing rugby. And he wrote me a letter saying, if and when you want to be a journalist, when you come back from your stint in the army, let me know. And he was the guy who gave me my start in Manchester, England, because he was then the editor of the Daily Dispatch, published in Manchester. So that's how really it all came about. But I must say that after Hogan, I wanted to do what I've done all my life. So I, that's another debt I owe him. You know. do, you, do you think about that? I mean, do you, do you ever think back of that moment at Carnoustie and how it shaped yes. everything else that followed? Yes, I do. I do indeed. And by the way, I was not discovered. And I slunk, snuck back into the barracks. <laughs> you weren't. So, I mean, you're gone for a week, yes. right? You're gone for a week, and there is a bed with a fruffled pillows. I mean... If, if I'm your commanding officer, I'm thinking you're dead. <laughs> he hasn't been out of bed in seven days. It's amazing, isn't right? it? Right? You, so you weren't thrown into the brig. You weren't tortured. You weren't thrown out to, no. well, let's send them to Russia. They can have them, right? <laughs> well, good friends, too. I yeah. mean, good friends to cover for you. Yes. Oh, yeah. And they must have done a good job. Yeah. I mean, I didn't ask them. <laughs> <laughs> and you returned the car? Yeah. <laughs> okay, everything, everything came out all right. Yeah. Perfect. I hope you all enjoyed that interview as much as I did. A very special thanks to Ben Wright and his wife for allowing me into their home and their enthusiasm for the history of the game. I also want to take a moment to thank the Golf Heritage Society for their wonderful publication, The Golf. The idea of this program came directly from an article published by Ben Wright in the Golf Heritage Society's The Golf. If you love history, golf collecting, and or golf art, I would strongly suggest you check out their website at www.golfheritage.org. It costs $50 to join, and that comes with four editions of the golf. Perhaps you can read a story before it becomes a podcast. Coming soon to Talking Golf History, Ben Wright will be joining us again to discuss his remarkable career in golf and some absolutely delightful stories concerning golf's greatest characters. If you want to relive the nostalgia of Ben Hogan on an everyday basis, check out www.benhogangolf.com to build your very own set of Ben Hogan golf clubs. Built upon the design principles of Ben Hogan himself, mixing history, nostalgia, and modern technology into possibly your next set of clubs. Rather than end the show with my typical diatribe, I thought I would leave you all with John Durr's interview with Ben Hogan from the grounds of Carnoustie just after his 1953 Open Championship victory. This is Carnoustie, and this is the scene of the British Open for 1953, and with us is the new British Open champion, America's champion, Ben Hogan. 
Ben has just concluded his second round here today at Carnoustie, where the weather was changeable throughout the day. We had rain, we had a little sunshine, we had a little wind. It was probably the best day of play of the entire tournament, both the qualifying and the championship. Hogan has just come in with a record-setting 68. He's in at 68, 282. Four players tied at 286 behind him. Well, Ben, I know this must be a great moment for you to have just won the British Open. Yes, it certainly is, John. I can't tell you how happy I am. And uh, the people have just been wonderful coming over here. I never saw such crowds, and uh, I think the whole of Scotland actually was pulling for me to win, along with uh, a lot of my friends in the United States. And I'm, I'm just so, so thankful that I have won. Well, Ben, today, I know you said nothing about this beforehand, but I know that you were playing with a cold. I know that you've not uh, felt your best the last three or four days. Uh, yet, uh, you were able to come up this morning, have a, a very fine 70, despite a 6 on the 17th hole, and come in in time for the lead three-way point. At that time, uh, did you, you think that you had a good chance to come in and take it this afternoon? Well, yes, I did. Uh, when I went through the uh, fifth hole, one under par, I thought I had a good chance of winning if I could uh, just hold the one under and uh, maybe pick up another one someplace along the line. It's awfully difficult to get birdies here, and it's even harder to keep them after you get them. Uh, <laughs> that's that's uh, true. I, I had to do some wonderful putting this afternoon. I mean, the same shot, that is, because uh, I was some uh, uh, 50 to 60 feet away from the hole on, on, on about the uh, last four or five holes, and I did marvelous putting. I don't, I'm not complimenting myself, but I got the ball down in two, which, which I think was the, was the uh, uh, thing that uh, let me win. Well, about those putts, uh, I might explain that uh, the second putt was seldom uh, too long a putt because Ben was putting that first one right to the pin. You mentioned the fifth hole. You were through the fifth hole this afternoon in one under fours. Uh, here at Carnoustie and I suppose throughout all Scotland, the scores are kept uh, level four rather than par or what a score might be. And uh, here this week, uh, we've had to learn how to keep it in level fours. Well, that's right. Well, now, you were one under level fours uh, with a three on the fifth. Then that fifth hole is 388 yards. Uh, it has a burn running across it, as almost every hole here at Carnoustie does. And I think that you probably made the, the one shot there this afternoon that uh, set you on your way to winning this British Open. Uh, would you describe for us a little bit that uh, fifth hole? Uh, uh, yes, John. As a matter of fact, it did give me a terrific shot in the arm. Uh, I played a brassy off of the tee to stay short of the burn, and uh, I hit a five iron my second shot, and I landed on the green with the shot. Uh, and the ball uh, kicked to the left and kicked down right in the edge of the trap. It actually wasn't in the trap or it wasn't out of the trap. Half the ball was in and half of it was out. And uh, to me, that's about the most difficult shot uh, you could have. Plus the fact that I had to come up very, uh, very sharply, bring the ball up uh, and then make it run. Uh, well, as luck would have it, I, I hit this ball and uh, I don't know what happened, but uh, I just clipped it just right. The uh, ball took a terrific backspin and... Uh, well, it didn't go right in the hole. And folks, it did go in the hole. Well, that was the first time that we heard everybody on the course cheer at one time. Well, I cheered a little myself too, John. You were still cheering. Well, that was the, the uh, sixth hole is uh, a tough hole here. The sixth hole is 567 yards. And uh, I might I say that it's longer than that. I think it's about 600. Well, with a little wind, it can be 700. I'll say uh, you played that hole beautifully both times today. Uh, uh, this 567-plus yard hole, Ben uh, was right in front of the green with his second shot both times. And he latched onto a pair of fours there. Well, now, this uh, 
I think, was probably as troublesome a hole for the most uh, most of the pros here in this British Open, uh, probably the most troublesome hole on the course. And today you were able to get uh, right in front of the green both times, and you played very fine chips there. Uh, I suppose uh, this afternoon your putt was, what, uh, three feet, probably? Oh, no, John, uh, it was about uh, four and a half, five feet, I'd say. Oh, that's that far? Yes, yes, it was. Well, it was a, a wonderful chip from, uh, from your location after the uh, uh, second shot, your third up to the pin, and then the concentration, and when that one dropped, I think all of us uh, felt a little easier. Yes. Well, then the, the round, this afternoon's round, was uh, not without its moments of drama, not without its moments of highlights as we went on to the, the seventh hole. This hole had been costly in the second round. Uh, ben had taken a five there. He had had a three the first round, and he also had a three this morning. This afternoon, he just missed the plus, another three and came up with a four. Then the little short eight hole, you almost uh, ran a deuce down on a spare. That one missed by about four inches. Yeah, that's right. And the ninth hole, uh, that's 483 yards. And how many yards do you actually believe that hole is? Well, it's about 483. Well, uh, it's about one of the toughest four cars I've ever that's seen. That's the longest looking hole. Well, since they have two bunkers right down the middle of the fairway where you want to drive, and there's just... Uh, there's just hardly any room to get around them. Uh, you have to play short of the left-hand bunker and and uh, hit a full two-iron or four wood in the green and hook it at the same time. It's, uh, uh, there are some shots here that I don't know much about. Well, that's the only green that's actually hidden uh, where the, the greenskeeper can't find it. I mean, it's back in the corner next to that railroad and next to the fence. Uh, the first two days, you had a little trouble finding the green. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> What's the day? Both rounds around today, Ben found that uh, long, elusive ninth green, 483 yards away, and came up with a pair of fours. So that, at that point, uh, this afternoon, uh, Hogan was out in 34, two under-level fours. By this time, we knew that the little man was rolling. I was interested in the number of people whom I heard in the gallery this afternoon who told how many miles they had come to see Hogan win the British Open. I didn't realize that all those people were from California, but they must have been to have come as long as far away as that. At any rate, along about that time, I ran into a man who said he'll probably go 3-3-3 from here in. But uh, the next hole, the 10th hole, uh, you've got a very fine three there this morning. Rolled in a, a beautiful putt there. Uh, this afternoon, on the 10th hole, he came up with another wonderful drive. This hole is guarded by the deepest burn that there is on the court. The fourth hole, the 11th hole, I mean, was uh, a hole that I kept waiting for you to birdie all week, 368 yards, and I know that you must have expected to hold uh, some of those putts you had there, and yet you came up with four straight fours on that hole. I never could get, to the, get the, my uh, pitch shot to the hole. I don't know, it, uh, it would uh, uh, drag up too fast for me, and uh, although it's downhill from the front of the green, I just couldn't make myself get the ball up to the hole. And as a result, I always had uh, some place in the neighborhood of 20, 25 uh, footers there. Well, the, the, the long hole, the 12th hole, is another par four, 467 yards. And today, you saved a very good four there. You were short uh, of the green with your second. That's right. And uh, you, you made a very fine chip there. I, I heard a number of the uh, uh, local fans complimenting you on the British-style chip you made on that one. A low pitch and run, wasn't it? Well, you have to use uh, British and American and South African and everything else to play this place. That's right, you do. <laughs> you have to mix them up quite a lot. We waited a long time to see Hogan get a deuce here. There are not many uh, short holes. Uh, the par threes are pretty well scattered, and one of the par threes is 250 yards, and you don't have many deuces on holes of that length. No, you don't. 
But uh, you ran one in this morning that uh, set the crowd off again and uh, came along and did the same thing on the same hole this afternoon, on the 13th. That's a 169-yard hole. Uh, how long was your putt there this morning, Ben? I'd say I had about an eight-footer this morning and uh, about 12 feet this afternoon. Uh, you were getting better. You were holding it from 12 feet. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, the one this morning was a beautiful putt, and uh, the one this afternoon, uh, somebody's umbrella got right in front of me, so I was unable to see that. <laughs> Then you came up to the uh, 14th hole, and you lost the stroke. That's the only five you had this afternoon. That's right. 473-yard uh, hole. You were a little short with your second. Yeah, I was going into the wind, and I hit a forward, and uh, I ballooned it just a little bit uh, too much, and uh, uh, the ball fell short, and, and of course, it didn't roll on the green. My chip with a five iron was about uh, seven feet short, and uh, I missed the putt. Well, the putt was uh, was dead on line. It only stopped uh, uh, an inch and a half, two inches away from the hole. And uh, that was one of those that seemed to uh, get putty on it, as uh, some of the boys have been calling the greens here this week. Yes, uh, John, I've continually put it short here. I don't know why. I just couldn't get the ball to roll. Maybe it was the strangeness of a small ball or something, but uh, I thought I hit the ball hard enough, but, but uh, it just wouldn't go funny. Well, Ben, you were short on, uh, on approach shots uh, more than I have seen you in a great many tournaments. Uh, was that because there was trouble beyond the green in a great many cases, or? No, oh, I just, uh, I just misjudged. It didn't hit it hard enough, or the ball had stopped faster than I thought it would. Uh, well, that often uh, happened. I mean, you had uh, a lot of quick bites today, on, and then yes. it hit what looked to be the same type shot uh, two holes later, and it would run 20 feet. Yes. Uh, did right. you have that? Uh, that the way it looked to you? Well, yes. Uh, well, those are those are made to run on purpose. I was determined to make a ball run here. And yeah. some of them did. Some of them did this afternoon, yes. Well, the 15th this afternoon, now we're heading home. The crowd had really grown tremendous by this time. People were seeing, instead of every other hole, they had decided to see every third hole. And the 15th crowd, the 15th green was surrounded, I suppose, the people were 10, 12 feet deep all around it, standing on little hills, crags, uh, standing on chairs, benches, anything they could stand on. I heard one British gentleman make a, a great uh, mark of, I guess you would call it, real uh, honor. And he offered to let his wife stand on his toes so she could see over the crowd of the people in front. <laughs> and uh, Ben satisfied them. He had a very comfortable four at the 15th. And we came up to the 16th, which has been somewhat of a joiner to all of our American pros here. The short hole we were talking about, only 250 yards, but it's a tough hole. And the first three, the first two rounds, uh, there was not a three among them. Stranahan, Hogan, and Mangrum all had fours there. Today, Ben latched onto a pair of threes. Uh, you you moved to a, a wood to hit well, three wood, four wood there today. Oh, grassy both times. Did you? Uh, yes, that hole is about uh, 240 yards, I think. And this afternoon we were going into a little breeze, and uh, it was it I, was I raining at that point too. Landed right on the front of the green and two putted happily for my boot. Well, that first putt uh, brought quite a gasp from the crowd there. That one must have come up uh, pretty close. Yes, I was real happy to see that one roll up. Well, the hole that I was happy to see behind, Ben, was the 17th. This morning we were, uh, were standing by at the 17th, and uh, things went bad. Uh, Hogan had a beautiful drive, and then the second shot landed in the bunker. The third was out, and that was the second uh, three-putt green of the morning. So uh, it looked like the 68 was going to be on the board this morning, but I'm glad we got it this afternoon. But a six there this morning. Now, as you came up to the 17, you, uh, uh, you played the brassy again off the tee? No, I hit a four-wood this afternoon. The wind was a little stronger back of me. I had a four wood between the two burns. That's what you have to do there. You can't possibly take anything else. 
And then I uh, played a full four iron, about as hard as I could nail it, and two putted for a four. And a very beautiful four. Then on the last hole, now the crowd was really excited. They were standing around. I talked with some of the representatives of the Royal and Ancients here who said that never before had there been a more popular champion. They all wanted to see Hogan hold it out on the last hole. Get a wonderful drive. That drive, I believe, as long as any you hit all week. Must have been 